So whether you've grown up in church or even if you've never stepped foot in a church, but you've just paid attention to commercials, sporting events, anything in pop culture, you've probably encountered a common phenomenon when the Bible's mentioned. And that would be that you see verses that are taken out of context or half-truths that are uttered quite a bit. Um, we can think of some famous examples. Like there was a season where every single football player would put Philippians 4.13 in their eye black. And that meant that they were going to win that football game because all things were possible through Christ. Or you would see things like people saying, um, having coffee cups with Jeremiah 29.11. And uh, the assumption was that they would live lives of abundant material prosperity because God had a plan for them to prosper. Or maybe it was a different uh, thing. Instead of a verse, it was a half-truth where someone would say, uh, God won't give you more than you can handle that Tim just preached on recently. Um, whatever it is, we can all think of examples of half-truths that we've heard from Scripture or verses taken out of context. And, I mean, if you've been here at PV very long, you've heard Merle just preach a whole sermon series on this. And it's important because when verses are taken out of context or half-truths are uttered, people end up rejecting a God and a Bible that aren't actually real. And so it's important for us to identify those things. And uh, for our very first tabletop question of the night, I want us to start off just by talking about this. What are some examples of famous verses that often get taken out of context or half-truths that you've heard? We could, we could think of so many, but talk for a little bit uh, at your tables about those, and then we'll get some answers, and we'll keep on going. There, there's plenty of examples we could come up with, um, but as we begin, as we dive in tonight, we're continuing on in our series in Romans 8 on the love of God. We're going to look at one of the most misinterpreted uh, verses in all of Scripture. Um, So actually, I've I've titled this this message, The Greatest Verse Ever Misunderstood. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I I hope you'll see that tonight. Um, This is a verse that, when misunderstood, has caused people to believe that God's unfaithful. It's caused them to believe that God's a liar. And yet, I actually believe that when we understand it in context, that rather than extinguishing the spark of faith in our life, it actually lights it on fire. It actually gives us confidence no matter what comes. Um, some of you might be able to guess what verse I'm talking about. And it's Romans 8.28. You might even be able to recite it. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So our goal tonight is to figure out what does that actually mean? And before we discuss what I think the actual meaning is, I want to correct a potential misinterpretation before we dive in. It's easy for us to poke fun at prosperity gospel uh, misinterpretations of different verses. It's easy to poke fun at different examples with Philippians 4.13 like we talked about. But we ourselves often will misinterpret verses too, but it'll be more subtle, which is sometimes actually more dangerous. And... I think with this verse, one of the subtle ways that we can misinterpret it is that actually when hard things happen, we immediately can go to this verse and say, well, okay, I'm really uncomfortable. This hurts. And God, you say in your word that all things will work together for my good. And our assumption can be that, okay, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to take this to you. And that right around the corner, it's all going to get better. And actually, I've heard preachers preach like this. And it's hard to refute because what they'll say is just, just hold on because right around the corner, you never know what's going to happen. And there's a sense in which that's true, but 
What can also happen is we can hold on to think that immediately in the very next moment, everything's going to change. And we may not actually be promised that. And so as Christians, sometimes when we use this verse, we can use this against God to say, okay, I'm uncomfortable, make everything right. And actually, I don't think that's what this verse is saying. But if you believe that, what can happen is when things don't immediately get better and when suffering lasts for a really long time, you can begin to wonder, okay, God, are you actually good? Can you actually turn things for good? And my hope is that tonight you would see that that's not the right way to look at this verse and that this verse means something so much better than that. So our whole goal tonight is just to figure out what does it mean that God turns all things for the good of those who love him? That's our goal tonight. And in order to do that, we're going to break down not just that verse in itself, but the surrounding verses. Because this is a verse that's easy to take out of context. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn or tap with me to Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26. And while you're getting there, let me, let me kind of explain how we're going to attack tonight. We, we know our, our main verse, Romans 8.28. We know what that is. We're going to see that. But in order to understand the context, we're going to break it down into two sections. The two verses right beforehand and then the two verses right after. And I believe the two verses right beforehand that we'll start with give us the on-the-ground perspective of how it is that God can turn things for the good of those who love him. And then the second chunk, which is right afterwards, verses 29 and 30, I think is the eternal perspective of how God turns all things for the good of those who love him. So we're going to look at those two parts, and then we'll bring them together. And I think it's there that we'll have our answer. So let's start in Romans 8. 26 and 27. Romans 8, 26 and 27 says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, what's that trying to say? Let's break it down. How is it that we can have comfort amidst hardship and pain in life? How is it that when something really hard happens, really painful happens, how is it that we can have comfort and peace amidst that? Verse 26 tells us right away, we can first be comforted because we can rest in the fact that we are not alone. Notice it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So no matter how alone you might feel in your pain, or no matter how alone you might feel in challenges that come on, you know that you are never actually alone if you're a Christian. Because you have the Spirit with you. He helps you in your weakness. That is a huge comfort. It's not just like a friend that hangs out near you. It is, a, it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God that is there to come to your aid to help you in whatever you encounter. But I think when the Spirit's with you, he's, again, He's not just there. He's not just kind of a, a random presence. But He actually does things. He's not just saying comfortable things to you in that sense. He actually does things to help you. And I think he does two primary things that can help us in pain. The first is this, that the Spirit intercedes when we can't even pray. The Spirit intercedes when we can't even pray. No, one, no, no theologian or anyone's going to debate the fact that uh, the Spirit actually draws us to pray. If you've ever had times where you just feel led and drawn in your heart to pray, that's the Spirit working in you. He's trying to get you to go to God, not just to rest on your own strength and power, but to actually go to the Lord in prayer. Take things to God. But if you've been a Christian for very long, 
you'll know that there are also times where you can't even imagine praying because your thoughts are so confused, so dark, so painful, that you, you don't even know how to articulate the words of what you need. And it's in those moments that the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and intercedes for us in a special way. It is a huge comfort for us that even when we can't articulate what we want to say, the Holy Spirit intercedes. Notice verse uh, 26. For we do not know what for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As a huge comfort. There's a Puritan preacher named Richard Sibbs who describes it like this. God can make sense out of a confused prayer. Our desires cry louder in his ears than our sins. Let that be a comfort. Our desires cry louder in God's ears than our sins. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit interceding on your behalf so that when you don't even know what to pray, it is that dark. You have someone that's interceding for you, going to God on your behalf. Think about it this way. God hears our cries like a parent hears the cries of a child. A parent can know what a child is crying for even when the child isn't using words. That cry beckons the parent to come to the aid of their child. And the same is true of us. We've got a Heavenly Father that can hear our cries even when we don't know how to articulate it. He can hear our cries and He comes to our aid. It's a huge comfort. I think the Spirit also intercedes in another way for us. And it's this. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. That's not just a throwaway phrase for, to sound pious. That actually means something. So when the Spirit intercedes for us, what is He actually saying? He's not just repeating our words back to God. That, that would seem unnecessary. God knows what we're praying. The Father knows what we're praying. So what is He actually saying when He intercedes? Look what verse 27 says. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't just intercede for us by repeating our words back to the Father. He does something so much better. He actually intercedes for us according to the will of the Father. God knows what we need so much better than we do. We can only have a small part and percentage of our life in view at any one time. We only know so much about ourselves. But the creator of the universe, the one that knit us in our mother's womb and knew us from eternity past, he knows exactly what we need. He knows what will happen in history, and the Spirit intercedes for us in that way. But here's the deal. When he intercedes for us, it is not always going to be comfortable things in the moment. Sometimes, he may actually intercede for us by asking for incredibly painful and challenging things in our life. Now that, that might seem counterintuitive because you're saying, okay, I'm crying out to God to get rid of pain, and yet the Spirit may actually ask for pain. That, that doesn't seem like it works. But here's the deal. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we need better than we do. And so God also knows, He is so great, He knows how to use pain and challenges in life to actually grow us and deepen our relationship with Him. And think about it this way. If you want to get in shape, you don't just sit on the couch. You actually have to exert energy and push it. And if you're lifting weights, what you're actually doing is you're tearing muscles in the process at a controlled level so then they, they will heal and you'll get stronger. That's essentially what God does a lot of times with pain in our life. As you're a Christian, you will surely encounter pain. It's, it's not going to be a pain-free experience. But with each and every encounter of pain, every challenge that you experience, it's like you're, 
you're lifting weights, you're, you're tearing a muscle that will be rebuilt, regrown. You'll be stronger. And as you begin to understand pain in that way, hard experiences in your life in that way, yes, they will be hard to endure, but you can know that there's an end for them. God has a purpose behind them. Pain is an opportunity for us to grow and draw near to God. It's not God rejecting us or abandoning us. It may be God's way of drawing us ever closer to him because when things are going well, you don't really have to rely on God. It's easy just to coast in life. It's only when the floor falls out from underneath you that you feel like you have to go to God. I know I've had that experience. I've had seasons in my life where I've prayed almost, you know, not at all because things have been so comfortable. And then it's the moment when something hard happens that I'm drawn right back to God. Think about it this way. When you encounter pain, again, don't just assume that God is abandoning you. He is using it to grow you and to strengthen you. Think about a vaccination. If you can imagine a child, a little child that's not old enough to understand what's going on, the child's at the doctor's office. All that child knows is the doctor's poking him with this big needle and it hurts a lot. And their parents are sitting there and it feels super insensitive. Their mom and dad are sitting back doing nothing while this doctor's hurting him. And for that child, it feels like their parents abandoning them. The child doesn't understand why it has to endure the pain it does. And yet the parent knows that that bit of pain is exactly what that child needs to grow in strength, to be healthier. That's kind of like what God does with us when we encounter pain. It's not that he's abandoning us, but he knows that there is a better end, that is an opportunity for us to draw near to him, and that we will be stronger and better for it when we lean into him in seasons of hardship and pain. For some of you, that might be Christmas time. That might be the loss of a loved one that you are still not over. You're still mourning and grieving. So that when you're, you're at the table with family and there's an empty seat, that's a chance for you to lean and say, God, I, I don't understand. I'm experiencing this, but I need you. It may be a disagreement with a family member or something hard with school or work. Whatever it is, it's an opportunity for you to lean in. It's an opportunity for you to draw near to God. And it's not him abandoning you, but it's him saying, come closer. Let's grow together. So what I want us to do is just take a second to pause That's a big topic, the idea that pain can grow us. And if you're a new Christian, or maybe you haven't encountered a lot of hardship in your Christian journey to this point, that can be hard to fathom. So here's what I want you to talk about at your tables. Think about a time in your life where you encountered something that was hard or painful, and you hated it in the moment, but you can look back now and see that you grew because of it. These could be serious examples, or these could be funny ones. It could be that there was a hard breakup, and it actually sets you up in a better place for a new relationship or another relationship. It could be the way that you were forced to rely on God in a situation where you felt helpless. It could be getting turned down for a job that actually prepared you to accept a better job. Lots of examples. But talk about at your tables, what's a season or a time where you've encountered pain or hardship and it's actually grown you? Talk about that for a couple minutes and then we'll keep on going. Okay, so I'm not going to ask you to share any of those answers out loud. Um, But keep those examples in mind, that there really are times where pain can grow you, it can strengthen you, and it can draw you to God. So that the thought that when the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God, it may not be immediately to have our pain taken away. But that's not a bad thing. It may be God's invitation to draw near, and the Holy Spirit knows it. 
Just think about Jesus in the garden. When Jesus is in the garden, we know that he is praying to God to say, Lord, if there is any other way, any other way but the cross. And we, we know he says, you know, but, but to your will be done. But in that moment, Jesus knows the pain that's about to come, and he is wrestling with this idea of, I mean, the whole weight of the world is about to be in his shoulders. I can't prove this from a verse, but I feel confident in saying that if the Holy Spirit is interceding for Jesus, according to the will of the Father, that even as Jesus is saying, God, if there's any other way, the Holy Spirit would be saying, but God, the cross needs to happen. He knows what's at stake. The cross has to happen. The world will not be saved if Jesus doesn't go to the cross. He doesn't lay his life down at the cross. The Spirit is interceding for something that is going to be incredibly painful, but because the Spirit knows it's exactly what the world needs. It's exactly what it will take for Jesus to be lifted up in praise in eternity. Which leaves us with, again, an interesting thought that maybe you've never considered. Have you ever realized that as you cry out to God, the very thing that you're, you're crying out for, that, God, you would release me from this, release us from this, the Holy Spirit might actually be praying that God would bring you something incredibly painful, incredibly testing and trying. That's a scary thought. It's a really scary thought. And yet, if we believe that God is who he says he is, if we believe he's good, if we believe he's done at the cross, taken the worst pain the universe has ever seen and turned it for the greatest good the world has ever seen, we can trust that if the Holy Spirit on our behalf is interceding for something that isn't immediately what we want, we can trust that actually it's going to be better. God is wise and he's good. And what that means is he has not only our good in mind, but the world's good in mind, and not just our present moment. He has our eternity in mind. God has more than this present moment in his gaze. He has all of eternity in his gaze at once. And our present comfort may not actually be what we need to enjoy eternity with him. So this leads us to our our second section of context. That God has an eternal perspective. So look with me at Romans 8, 29 through 30. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Again, these verses, I think, represent the eternal perspective of how God turns all things for good. Let's read them. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Over the years, a lot of pastors and theologians have called this the golden chain because there's all these steps that seem linked, that they can't be broken. For our purposes tonight, I think it'd be a lot more helpful to call this the journey of salvation. If you look at at these different steps, foreknowing, predestining, calling, justification, glorification, all those steps, that is part of the journey of salvation. You could sum up how salvation happens in that. And so what I want us to do is in order for us to see how God turns all things for good, we have to be able to understand what's happening in each of these steps because the culmination of it makes sense of everything we're talking about. So real briefly, let's just take a second and break down each of these steps. So step number one, foreknew. Verse 29 tells us the first step of the journey is foreknow. So 
What does, it, what does it mean that God foreknows those who love him? Well, we can see from the surrounding context that it isn't just God's bare knowledge of things that will happen. Um, we have no doubt that God has that knowledge. He knows everything that will happen in advance with utter certainty. But it's not what he's talking about here. And we can tell because of the surrounding context. In this passage, those whom God foreknows are on a journey to salvation. And we know that not everyone will be saved. So it can't just be God's knowledge of all people generally. It must be a different kind of knowledge. Foreknow must mean something different here. In the Bible, in Hebrew and Greek, in the Old Testament and the New, the word know has some different meanings. It doesn't just mean kind of knowledge of things. We often assume it just means bare knowledge, but it doesn't. It can mean different things. So, for example... In the Bible, one of the ways that knowing can be described is this intimate knowledge or love for someone. If we have more time, I could unpack probably 20 verses from the Bible of know, meaning intimate knowledge or love. But I'm just going to give you a few verses that you can chew on. First, Amos 3.2. God says to the people of Israel, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Okay, we know that's a different meaning for know because God obviously knows of every family on earth. So he must specially know these families, especially Israel. Matthew 7, 23. Jesus says to the hypocrites at Judgment Day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Of course Jesus knows who they are, generally. So no miss me something else. He must have a different kind of knowing when it comes to these people. Or how about Psalm 1, 6, which says, The Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He knows about the way of the wicked too, but he knows the way of the wicked, or excuse me, he knows the way of the righteous in the sense of approving, of recognizing, and loving the way of the righteous. Another example would be Genesis 4.1. So it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So that means that Adam knew Eve in the sense that he made her his, and he knew her intimately and loved her deeply. So, we know that no can refer to something other than just bare knowledge. That in actually, in this case, no is referring to a special kind of knowing, a special kind of loving. And that matters for what this verse is saying. Because foreknow in our verse could actually be rendered as foreloved. God foreloved his people. God knew and loved his children in a special way in eternity past. Yes, God loves everyone. But he has a special love for those that would place their faith in him. Think about that. If you're a Christian here, in eternity past, God has loved you dearly in a special way. God loved you before you ever loved him. God loved you before you ever came on the scene. Before anything happened with creation, God was enjoying the thought of loving you. God loved us first. And the only reason we can love him is because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4.19 summarizing our passage. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that God foreknows or foreloves his people. So let's go to the second step of the chain. Predestined. If you've grown up in church at all, immediately when you hear that word, you're probably squirming a little bit. You're like, okay, what's about to happen here? Uh, You have probably heard theological debates. You've heard family disagreements. And I think sometimes what can happen is, regardless of where you stand on all those issues... We can get so carried away about what we imagine 
verses are saying that we actually miss the point of the verses at hand. I think that's actually happening here. So let's look at the verse for a second. Verse 29. So for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And notice the following clause. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Predestination in this passage does not mean election or some theological term like that. It isn't that you're determined for heaven or hell without any choice or anything like that. No, Paul's telling us that God has predestined that we Christians would be shaped and molded and formed to look more like Jesus. That is astonishing. Like that fact that God in eternity past said, I want the people that I make, I want them to look more like my son, whom I love with my whole heart. That should, that should blow us away. Like, do you know what it means to be conformed to the image of God's son? It means that your character and integrity would be shaped and molded over time to look more like Jesus. It means that you would begin to take delight and pleasure in the very things that Jesus took delight and pleasure in, things that cannot ever be taken away or pass away. To be conformed to the image of God's Son means that you are growing in wisdom and understanding of who God is. It means worshiping God in an ever deeper way. It means being conformed to the image of God's Son means that even over time, you have more and more and more peace no matter what comes in life. It means that when the waves of reality crash down around you and churn all around you, you can walk upon the water. To be conformed to the image of God's Son means that you can have peace and pleasure that can't pass away so that, again, no matter what comes, no matter what pain, no matter what hardship you experience, you can have pleasure in who God is. You can have peace and joy in life. Just imagine that. Imagine that whatever situation you're encountering in your life, the more and more you look like Jesus, the more not only you can handle hard things that come, but the more peace you will have no matter what. That's a way better imagining than anything in a John Lennon song. So much better. We were made for this. But in order for us to be conformed to the image of God's Son, it means that we must experience what God's Son experienced. It means that we must bear a cross with Him. And again, sure, most of us aren't going to bear a literal physical cross, but some Christians in the world will. But what I think is in mind here is that rather than bearing a literal, physical cross, instead it means this. It means that when we take up the cross in our lives, we're taking up a cross of envy, pornography addiction, shame, desire to be liked by others that consumes us, coping with tragedy through eating disorders and drinking and cutting, our bouts with gossip. We're taking up a cross of our desires for a spouse above all things, our idolatry of comfort and children our bitterness over old wounds, our love of money and material goods and anything else that we would put in place of God that actually robs us of peace and pleasure and provision. It means that we put them to death. And that is a painful process. We all have idols in our life, things that we're putting on God's throne, pet sins, secret sins that no one knows about, things we struggle with, and it is really hard to put those things to death. But the more we do, the more we take up that cross, the more we are conformed to the image of God's Son, and the more we get to be like Jesus, the more we can have peace like Jesus. Just because you are conformed to the image of God's Son in this life, though, 
doesn't mean there won't be tears. This side of glory, tears and pain are still going to happen. And this is where I think it's significant. Because we can hear Revelation 21 and we hear, okay, no more tears, no more pain, no more crying. And that's true. But sometimes in this life, tears are actually a good thing. When Jesus became incarnate, he came to earth, took on flesh, became like us. He was perfect, he was sinless, he knew all things. And he still cried. He still had tears. He cries at the grave of Lazarus. He cries when he's entering in to Jerusalem. And that's not because of a deficiency in him, but it's actually because Jesus' sinless, spotless, perfect knowledge of all things actually sees the world for broken as it really is. He can think outside of just his own pain and brokenness in his life and sees that the world is not meant to be like this. He actually sees things more clearly, and so his tears, this side of heaven, are a good thing. It's okay to cry over the brokenness in the world. And in fact, that actually might mean that you're getting rid of idols in your life because you're looking outside of just your own view. And when we become more like Jesus, we can take up and see the brokenness of the world and it breaks our heart for the same things that God's heart is broken for. Our heart is broken for people that don't know Jesus and need to hear the gospel. Our heart is broken for pain in the world, homelessness, poverty, all of those things because we know that's not how the world is supposed to be. And the more we are conformed to Jesus' image, the more that our heart will be broken for those things. Finally, I'd say to be conformed to the image of God's Son means that we will be different than many of the people we interact with. A lot of us can imagine folks, and I'll use, I'll use Jane and Jane as an example because they're not here tonight. Because they, they would hate for me to do this in front of them. <clears throat> when you interact with Jane and Jane, you can't help but walk away thinking, I just had a conversation with someone that's been with God. Because they are people of peace. They have been molded and conformed to be more like Jesus over time through some really hard experiences, through some really hard challenges. And over time, they are molded and they're more like who Jesus is. You walk away with a sense of joy when you interact with them. There's a sense of peace. And we can all think of individuals in our lives who have incredibly deep relationships with the Lord. And when you walk away from interacting with them, there's something different about them. It just draws you in. You want to be around them. That's, that's an example of people that have been conformed to the image of God's Son. So again, I, I wouldn't say this in front of them because uh, they would blush, but again, take Jay and Jane for an example. Jane spent a ton of time and energy putting together the Friendsgiving, which was a blast last week. It was so much fun. And Amidst all that time and energy, the only reason she could do that is because she and Jay rescheduled when they were going to leave for their anniversary trip. And they pushed it back a day so they could be here for the Friendsgiving. Because they knew this would be a chance where new people might come in for the very first time to 20-somethings. And from that, they might have a chance to hear more about the gospel. They had a trip that they definitely deserved. And yet, all of that to say, they postponed it by a day so they could be here and serve people. I, that wouldn't be my first inclination. If I had the, they had the, the trip book and everything, I wouldn't move. I mean, I'd just say, oh, gosh darn it, you know, I won't be here this year. Let me know if you need any help. But here's the crazy part with that. I sat down with Jay the Monday after uh, the Friendsgiving, and we're catching up. It had been a little while. And I asked him, how was your weekend getaway? And he said, what weekend getaway are you talking about? And I said, oh, the one you, you guys are going to go to San Diego and just kind of enjoy yourselves. And he said, we didn't end up going. We canceled the flights. 
I said, oh, I thought you were going to go the next day. He said, no. Um, and, and you could tell he was super apologetic before he said this. He goes, I don't want this to sound weird. But he said, we just felt this burden on our heart for a woman that we know is about to pass away. Used to be our neighbor in another state. And so they drove five hours to go see an elderly neighbor, former neighbor, to share the gospel with her because she's not a Christian and they don't know how much longer she's going to be alive. I mean, I'm, so I'm sitting back thinking like, oh gosh, I'm like a terrible person compared to this. Like, when was the last time I exerted that much energy to share the gospel with someone? Like, I could not help but smile because it's like, oh my goodness, I'm looking at someone that has wrestled with the ideas of Jesus, that loves Jesus, and is being conformed to his image. And it's like, man, if I want to look more like that, I have a long way to go. I know the Holy Spirit's there to help me do it. He's there to help you do it. And those are the kind of people that are world changers. And we can do that the more we are conformed to the image of God's Son. So next step in the chain. Got called. Um, This next step, so we've had foreknow, we've had predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, and now we have calling. This is a really beautiful step. And really what this calling means is that it is a drawing of God. God is drawing you to fall in love with Him. This happens before, particularly before you're a Christian. God is drawing your heart to fall in love with Him. Really, you could, you could instead of calling this calling, you could call it romancing. I, and I'm serious about it. I mean, that sounds funny, but God romances our hearts and draws our hearts to fall in love with Him. This isn't God just dragging us along. It's nothing like that at all. He is calling us so that our hearts would be turned, that we would freely come to Him. That is beautiful. And he does it in a myriad of ways. He does it with sermons. We've all, many of us have probably had that moment where you're listening to a sermon, you think the pastor's just looking right at you, talking right to you, and you realize, okay, like, something has to change. Or maybe, maybe you're reading a book, and a truth just blew your mind, and you realize, oh my gosh, like, I need to come to Christ. Or maybe it was a time of worship, or at a church camp, or something like that, a powerful moment where God is romancing your heart. Maybe it's a conversation with a friend or a family member. If you're a kid, you came to Christ as a little kid. Maybe it's reading a Bible story with your parents. Or maybe it's something in nature. I'm sure people come to Christ looking at sunsets. I'm sure it's happened. Um, But God uses so many different means to draw our hearts, to romance us, so that we might fall in love with him. This is a beautiful, beautiful process. I can look back on my journey with just a smile on my face, to thinking all the ways God's fingerprints were there all around me, drawing me to him, drawing my heart to him. So, here's what I want to do. I've been talking for a long time. I want to give you a second just to reflect on, if you're a Christian here tonight, what are some ways, when you look back at your story, what did God use to call you? What did God use to draw your heart to accept Christ? Was it a sermon, a family member, conversation, reading the Bible, something in nature? What, what was it that drew your heart to fall in love with God? And for some of you, I know it's been a long time since you've become Christian. So think back. What was that like as a child? What, what was it that made me fall in love with God to give my life to him? So talk about that at your tables for just a moment, and then we'll keep on going. Okay, so let's, let's keep on moving to our last two steps. Our last two steps. So we've talked uh, about foreknowing. We've talked about predestining to be conformed to the image of God's Son. We've talked about calling. And now we're going to move on to justification. So justification is just a fancy word to mean that we are made right with God. 
we are made right with God. Without Jesus, we are all guilty of sin and the just punishment of God for our sin. We can do nothing in our own might to save ourselves. And because of that, we deserve all the punishments of hell. This is where Jesus steps in. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Because at the cross, he takes on our sin and the punishment that we deserve. He pays the price that we could never pay. And he gives us his very righteousness and holiness and goodness. That exchange changes everything. That exchange is justification. Here here might be an example of how to understand what justification is like. Imagine that you have an incredible debt. You owe more money than you could ever possibly pay back. Even if you worked at every single moment for the rest of your life, you could still never pay that debt back. And imagine that this incredibly kind, incredibly wealthy person comes along and says, I see your need that you could never pay for it on your own. And so I will take on your debt and I'll, I'll pay off your debt. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, not only am I going to pay off your debt, this incredible amount that you couldn't imagine paying back on your own might and power. He said, I'm also going to give you my whole inheritance so that you could never possibly go in debt again. That's a picture of what justification is like. Jesus takes upon our sin and the punishment that we could never pay back on our own. And in exchange, we are given his very righteousness. We can never be counted as sinners again. It changes everything. Finally, let's, let's move to glorification. This one's brief. It's the final step of the salvation journey. Glorification is an event that will happen in the future. The rest of these, have, if you're a Christian today, the rest of these have already happened. God, uh, God foreknew you in the past. He predestined your conformity to Jesus' image in the past. He called you in the past if you're a Christian. He justified you. When you accept Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, the Holy Spirit gives you all the benefits that Jesus earned on your behalf. So all of those steps have already happened if you're a Christian. But this last one, glorification, is just a fancy way for saying when we get to the new heavens and the new earth with redeemed bodies and we get to be with God forever. And this one awaits us. This is the one that gives us hope. It happens in the future when Jesus returns and we get to be with God forever. So that's, that's all the steps of the journey. We have, again, you said foreknowing. We have predestining to be conformed to the image of the Son. We have justification, excuse me, of calling, then justification, and then glorification. How do all of these relate to our question of the night? So how is it that God will turn all things for the good of those who love him? Again, there's a lot we could say here. Theologians have spent a ton of time on this. But I really think there's only one or two main things I think are most important for us to think about. One is this. Pain is involved or relevant at every single step of the process. Pain is involved or relevant at every single step of the process. Think about it. When God foreknows, especially loves, foreloves his people, he also knows that they will sin. They will rebel against him. And the moment he commits himself to them, he knows that he would have to send his very own son to die on their behalf so that he could be with them forever. That is a pain beyond anything we could ever imagine. But it's not just that. It's also justification. Because when he sends his very son, Jesus experiences the pain of the cross. Not just the pain, the physical pain of the nails and the tree and the whipping, but that he's bearing the wrath of God for our sins of the world. That's the worst pain. Pain is involved in both steps. 
And then think about us when it comes to calling and things like that, or the predestining to be conformed to Jesus' image. In both steps, when you are called, many times the way we are called is because God actually gives us a really hard experience. He gives us an incredibly unsatisfying experience so that we can see that all the pleasures of this world will not satisfy us like he will. We can keep on going and going and going, but nothing is going to give us peace like God can give us peace. And sometimes it's that realization that actually gets us to give our lives to Christ. Or, as we're being conformed to Jesus' image, we experience the pain and challenges and hardships of life on our way to glory. That's actually what shapes us and molds us into the image of God's Son. So there is pain involved every single step of the way. It's not that when you become a Christian, everything just gets easy. But that this is to show you that every single step of the salvation journey, pain is involved. And yet it's all worth it. All of it turns for a good end. Think about it. If you've been here with us for a little while, we read Romans 8.18 a little while back. And we can say this with Paul when we look at the salvation journey. We consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Everything that you experience on this journey of salvation is worth it. Everything that you experience is worth it because it molds you to be more like Jesus. It draws you near to God that you can enjoy fellowship with him, which is a foretaste of what you will surely enjoy forever in glory. God turns all of that pain and hardship for good. He took the worst crime ever committed, the worst pain ever committed in the history of the universe, and turned it for the greatest good the universe has ever seen. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's not that God is afraid of pain or just suddenly going to go away. It's God is so good that he actually turns pain into good purposes. So, here's how I want us to, to end this. When you put all of this together, when, we, you, when you sum all of this up, all of these truths, here's the answer. God shows us that he will not only be with us in the current moment, with his spirit, interceding on our behalf for what we need, even if we don't know what we need. So we have comfort and a presence in the moment to endure pain. And it's all along the journey of salvation to glory where there will, no be, there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more crying in glory. And it's all connected. That every single thing we encounter, God is using for our good. Notice this. In, in Romans 8.28, it doesn't just say some things God will use for our good or all things in our own life. He says all things just generally. Which means that every single moment of human history and existence is working in some way for your good and God's glory. God's plan is so much bigger than your present moment. It's so much bigger than just comfort right now. It is bigger than anything you can ever imagine because every single millisecond of history down to a microscopic level we can't fathom is working for your good. And it's working for your comfort, but it's a comfort that will last forever. It may just may not be right now. Every single moment in history. We will look back on Judgment Day and we will be able to see everything that has happened in humanity, the worst crimes we could ever imagine, and God is going to flip them over on their head and in some way, they will be used for his glory and our good as his people. We can't imagine what that would be like. And that's a good thing. Because for us, when we encounter pain in our lives, we are usually good. If we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, we're usually good until we hit that point where we can't imagine that God could turn something 
for good. We can't, when we can't imagine where the light at the end of the tunnel is, that's when we lose hope and we fall into despair. But because God can do more than we could ever ask or imagine, we can know that even when we can't imagine a way for this to be turned for good, we can trust that God can do it. Because again, he took the worst crime, worst pain, worst evil ever committed, and turned it for the good of the universe. Which means he can take anything that we encounter and turn it for our good. Our imaginations are not big enough. If you were with us a month or two ago, when we went over Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, we talked about how God can do immeasurably more than all we could ask or think. That's true here. He can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Sometimes it's good to have the reminder that our imaginations are small. This is a humorous example, but um, this, is, this is a reminder for me of how small my imagination is. Um, when I was in college, um, I had a roommate that had a huge crush on this girl in our college ministry. Um, they were good friends. They went to the same church. They served together. They knew each other well. And as they got closer, he asked her out. And she said no. And she used the dreaded line of, let's just be friends. So, of course, all of us as, as roommates are just thinking, like, yeah, but you don't just get out of the friend zone. That is like purgatory and prison and, I mean, there's no way to get out. It's a, it'd be a miracle. And so for the next couple of years, he's essentially just living, living in the state of, uh, you know, he still really likes her, but th- there's no way. He's kind of just giving up hope. And even we as roommates, like, we would kind of joke with him a little bit because we still thought it would be a good match, but... Like, we thought there was no hope either. Uh, You don't just come out of that. And one day, I'll never forget, two, three years later, uh, all of us roommates are in the living room. We're playing Call of Duty, like college guys do. And all of a sudden, I get a call from the girl. She and I had been pretty close in college. And so I throw on speakers so I can still play. And she notices immediately, and she's like, hey, can you take me out of speaker? This is like, we need to have kind of like a one-on-one conversation here. Well, my friend sees that, so he's like, what on earth is going on? Like, why would she say that? And so she's like, can you meet me at the student union in like 20 minutes? I'm like, okay, this must be really important. So we finish the game. I hop over to the student union. And as we're sitting there, she kind of is making small talk and whatever. And finally I'm like, okay, you know, something must be important. Let's just, let's cut to the chase here. And she's like, I really don't know how to say this, but I like him. I'm like, what are you talking about? You like him? And she's like, I like him. Like, don't, this is not funny. This is not April Fool's Day. Like, quit, don't, don't play this prank. You know how much we've all been, like, wanting this. And she's like, no, I, seriously, I like him. Um, can, you, can you feel out what that conversation would be like? She's like, I don't even know if he'd still be interested. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's still interested, but let me check. <laughs> so right after that, I was supposed to play softball with all my roommates and some other guys from the college ministry. And they were already there warming up. And... Uh, as I, as I pull up, I'm walking up to the field, and I'm trying to signal to the guy, like, hey, can we talk for a second? And I'm, like, yelling out to him. He's like, nah, whatever you have to say, just say it out loud. We're warming up right now. And so I'm like, she, she's in. She likes you. She wants to date. And he's like, ha, 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 whatever. And I was like, no, I'm serious. I literally just talked to her. And everybody turns. Everybody's in, in the situation. And it's like if you've ever seen if someone hits a walk-off home run and then bottom of the ninth in the World Series, and they all, like, jump up and down around home plate, that's literally what we started doing. And it was just, we were amazed because it's like, we did not imagine in a million years that was ever a possibility. We just thought it was this false hope. And yet, we had our minds blown and our imaginations blown because something took place that we didn't think was possible. 
I know that's a humorous example, but it's good for us to be reminded that our imaginations are small because as we encounter pain and hardship, we need that in the moment to say, God, I have no idea how you're going to turn this for good. I have no idea how you are going to make it right with what my abuser did to me or what this person said to me or this, this sin that's happened. I have no idea how you're going to make that right. To remember that our imagination is not the constraint for God. He is so much bigger than that. And because of that, we can trust that he will make all things turn for good so that when we get to glory, we'll be able to look back with a smile and minds blown saying, God, I have no idea how you did this, but I'm ready to worship you forever because of it. So here's how I want us to close tonight. I want us to take a moment at your tables, just silently, and I want you to to think What is a situation in your life right now that you can't possibly imagine God turning for good? It just seems like the darkest situation. Maybe it's something that you've never told anyone. A secret sin. Something, a hurt from the past that you just, it's still, you grieve over all the time. Something you're mourning over right now. Whatever it is. I want you, I want to give you an opportunity to go to God and say, God, I have no idea. I can't imagine how you would possibly turn this for good. But I trust that because I love you, You said in your word you would turn it for good in some way. So God, help me to lean in, to trust. And I can't wait for you to blow my mind. So take a second to your tables. Pray that silently. I'm not going to have you pray out loud. And then Nick's going to come up and lead us in one final song. And I'll pray us out. So pray silently that God would show you where you're having trouble imagining that he could turn something for good.